Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles, your podcast for all things psychological and spiritual development here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And today we come at you responding to a special request made by, I don't even know how many of you. Emergency Uh, session. It's an emergency session. Everybody sit down, buckle up your seatbelts. We, in response to uh, countless numbers of emails and messages on social media, are here to process with you the recent address given by Elder Hamilton of the 70 at Brigham Young University about a week ago called Why a Church. And Nathan and I have put a great deal of time and study. We want to thank you all for the uh, rich and deep conversations that you invite Nathan and I into as we are preparing for these kinds of experiences with you. And so we're um, happy to do this and ready to do this with you. Okay, so I'm going to call this episode some troubling takeaways from the recent Elder Hamilton address. And the reason why I'm wanting to call it that is because I'm putting myself in, well, I'm putting myself in my own shoes, (laughs) but I'm also putting myself, I'm really, really hyper aware of the venue where this was shared. This is shared with BYU students, young adults, what some have called and what we're fond of calling the rising generation. Uh, Those who are going to be, if they stick around, they're going to be the leaders of the church in the next generation. And so it's my feeling that what is being shared with the young adults is incredibly important for us to pay attention to and to listen to, because it kind of, I think, may potentially give us a sense of what what's going on and the concerns that maybe the brethren are having about what is going on in the current culture of the church, of the world, of our current zeitgeist. And therefore, I think it's important for us to look at After having listened to this talk, I think there are certain things that I have integrated as far as what I think a typical person may have taken away from this. I'm not 100% sure if it was intended this way, but I think it's, it's important to at least talk about what I took away, what we took away, and what we think many people probably took away from this very direct address about the stance of at least this individual at the leadership level of our church. Yeah, so a couple things, um, you know, on the heels of the of the talk by Elder Corbett, which has a lot of similarities to, to this talk, and also in light of the fact that the church has really been beating the drum of getting more missionaries out there, now they're beating this drum uh, about religious freedom. Um, it, it comes across like there's a lot of fear. And, you know, I'm not in the meetings. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what's down deep inside their hearts, but it sure gives a projection that there's a lot of fear uh, in the upper ranks of the church and that they are really trying hard to get everybody back in line to get all the soldiers, all the good soldiers back marching in the same beat. Mm. And like you, um, I took some notes on what I thought were the prevailing themes. 
And the vast majority of what I considered to be the prevailing themes were a little bit troubling to me. Yeah, me too. There were some things that he said that I felt were very good. Mm -hmm. And there were some things I thought he said that were very damning. Um, and so I think our intention is to kind of go through and talk about some of our takeaways uh, in general principles, but also maybe using some specific examples of, of what we thought might be good and also what we thought um, might um, be a little bit bad. Troubling. The list right now is a long one. It has 13 points of of fairly troubling take-homes that I think would be worth addressing. And it's actually my hope that if somebody that has authority in our church listens to this, that you'll listen to this from a place of our our deep concern and our love for you, that we really want to have an open dialogue. And we want you to know what it feels like to be on our side of the table as a listener of an address of this nature. And that maybe what we are hearing is not what you're saying, but I think having an open dialogue about this and understanding what many of us, us just in the ranks are, are feeling. So point number one that I took home from this address, what I feel like Elder Hamilton is saying, point number one is we are not interested. Meaning in, the church. Meaning the, the church. church is not we are not interested in your authentic experience or in your accompanying pain. And the reason why Nathan and I both felt like this was a pervasive theme of this is because having studied intensely the faith crisis report, where people were going into a great deal of detail and um, a team of scholars, a very faithful Latter-day Saint scholars were putting together what people are feeling underneath all of the comments that Elder Hamilton made it felt very clear that he wasn't interested in why people are saying the things that they're saying. Can you give some examples of some of the things that Elder Hamilton was commenting on, Nathan? Well, he, he quoted Elder Oaks, who said that, for instance, in the church, questions are welcome, but opposition is not. Um, and, and my question would be, where do you think questions come from? We don't ask sincere questions um, about hard topics because everything is lollipops and roses. Hard questions come from cognitive dissonance. Hard questions come when things that were taught don't seem to match with our lived experiences. And so in my mind to say, hey, we welcome your questions, but not your doubts. We welcome your questions, but not your opposing points of view is really a contradictory statement. All, all questions come from real, sincere, lived experiences that aren't adding up. And so to, to say, you know, essentially, um, you know, bite your tongue if you are hurt by something or bite your tongue if you don't agree with something, um, I think is a little demeaning. Yes. And I think it kind of circles back to another thing that he addressed in this talk, which is something, I don't have the exact words, but something that hovers around this idea that I worship Jesus Christ, but I struggle in some ways with prophets and apostles. Once again, that is not an arbitrary random statement. And when somebody says that, it's because they're speaking from a place of pain. Right. Something has happened in their lives where they have been wounded by the institution, whether it be an individual a talk, something that's happened at church, something that they have learned and integrated that has hurt them in their development, in their marriage in the way they have made life's choices. And so they're, they're trying to make a protest 
to say something doesn't feel good in my relationship with the church or those who are leading. And so what I heard from Elder Hamilton is, again, I don't know if this was the intention, but what came home to me was we aren't interested in what your pain is. You just need to do what we tell you to do. And we're not open to a dialogue about what your actual on the ground lived experience is, member of the church. Right. So he also uses an example at the end of this talk of the story of a African convert who serves a mission. And he joins the church in 1980, which is just after the revelation on the um, repealing of the priesthood ban. And this gentleman goes on a mission without being told about the history of the church. And he finds out from an investigator, from somebody that he's talking to, I believe it was in Britain, he finds out from a third party that the church has this history of racism. And he is naturally upset. He feels, I have been deceived. And so he goes and talks to his mission president. And what does the mission president say to him? He doesn't say, elder, this is very distressing. And there are a lot of things here that I don't understand. And I don't know how you got this far without somebody being straightforward with you and telling you that this, our church has this racist history. I am sorry that you found this out third hand. I am sorry that this is coming as such a shock to you as an African man learning that our church oppressed you and your people for so long. That's not what the president said. That's what a good counselor would have said. They would have validated his pain. They would have validated his shock. But instead he says, ah, you have a testimony. You know, the church is true. You know, Joseph was a prophet. Let it go, put it behind you. That is an inappropriate response to somebody's pain. Now this good brother decided to stay in the church, but it's not because of the response he got. He was treated poorly by his mission president. He should not have had to find that information out third party, and he should have been treated with respect and dignity. Like, yes, this is hard to find out. So to me, it just falls under that same thing. Like, I don't want to talk about your pain. I don't want to talk about your disappointment. I don't want to talk about your hurt. I want you to just bite your tongue, you know, lean on your testimony and get back in line. You're touching on another principle, Nathan, that we can jump down to, which is we practice and preach principles of individual repentance. You know, I feel like there was quite a bit of like, you need to change, you need to straighten up, you need to fall in line. I'm hearing this, this, and this, and it needs to stop or change. So this idea of like, you need to repent. But on the flip side, there is minimal, if any, institutional repentance practiced. Mm -hmm. And right, no Mm -hmm. accountability, even to circle back to the story that you were referring to that he ended the talk with, I don't even buy, we don't know what happened and it's a very unfortunate or period of our history. I I feel like that in and of itself is actually a cop-out, right? especially in the here and now. We do know what happened. We were an institutionally racist church that began with Brigham Young. And the more we can just look in the mirror and say that to ourselves over and over again, for those of us who feel like that's hard to say, (laughs) the better off we will be. We invite in our church, and I love this about our church, we invite an embodiment of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that we are capable of of growth, of change, of evolution. 
But it's incredibly damning to our church when we are asking the membership to behave in one way and the church is not behaving in the same way and modeling that kind of um, understanding of an embodiment of forgiveness and repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I think what may have been taken home from this is that you are expected to repent of your problems and sins, whatever those may be. But we, when that comes up for us on our side, we tell you to put it behind you and to walk forward in faith. That was a take home that troubled me in reference to that specific story that you told that I find very, very troubling and concerning. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, to to me, the accountability there, you know, the the gospel topics essays Mm. uh, on, on race and the priesthood is still somewhat inadequate. I mean, those of us who have read the, the real history that have read the documents that have seen the history, Brigham Young owned slave, owned slaves, Brigham Young accepted slaves as tithing, Brigham Young applied for statehood as a slave state, um, Brigham Young called for blood atonement in interracial marriages. Those are, those are all things that are troubling. And we ought to be able to say, yeah, that that was bad. And Brigham Young may have done some prophetic things, but that wasn't one of them. And I think that, again, this is this is unfortunately one more address that absolutely illustrates the problem that it's so incredibly it seems so painful and hard for them to just say what the rest of us want to hear, which would actually be healing a, a relationship breach amongst ourselves and them. And that kind of takes me to another point, which is, what I feel like may be a take home of this particular talk is that we as a church are not interested in a two directional conversation. We're not interested in a dialogue where we can come together and find peace where each party feels heard. It feels in some ways like what is um, advancing and seems to be picking up some speed is we don't want to hear what you're suffering from and we don't want to hear your voice at all. And that sort of circles us around to this idea that there is no such thing as a loyal opposition or in certain realms of society, there can be, um, what did he say about like constitutionally and certain like governments, there can be. Right. And government's loyal, op- loyal opposition is appropriate, but not in the kingdom of God. And, and we respectfully disagree that if we're going to any healthy relationship has to be able to have all parties having a voice. Yeah. And if you have any kind of an institution where there is a silencing of any participants' voices, that is not a healthy institution. That's actually an abusive institution. Yeah, and it doesn't even fall in line with our own revelations. I mean, we, we teach that revelation comes when you have full information. And so when we listen to what's going on on the ground, when we listen to our youth, why are they struggling? When we listen to our women, when we listen to our minority groups, and we ask them, why are you struggling? Why are you hurting? What is it that's going on? Then I think we put ourselves in places where we can have more revelation. And one of the things that he kind of bounces back and forth on in here in his talk that I, that I think is I don't know. It feels inconsistent to me is, is sometimes he really beats the drum like, hey, prophets get revelation and they speak for Jesus Christ. And then other times he goes back and says, no, it's really important to have councils and, and checks and balances. And, and I'm like, well, which is it? You know, if if a bishop has the keys over his 
over his ward, then he doesn't need a ward council. Or does he? You know, we, we tell stories about great ward councils where, where um, you know, people will come up with revelation who aren't the bishop. And then we turn around and say, but but we don't need to listen to your voices. And, and it's really confusing. I feel like they just send us in these these spirals about either you have the keys to preside and you and, and it's you and, and God, or you don't have the keys to preside and we can get revelation by listening to other people. And then it doesn't. And, and I'm telling you, it, it just puts my minds in pretzels as to whether or not we need to listen to each other. Did So inconsistent. Did you pick up in this talk, Nathan, that we were encouraged at all to practice our own judgment and to, to cultivate our own discerning powers? Because I didn't pick up on that, which again, very, very concerning to me. What I felt like he was really trying to deliver, again, this is what I felt, is that we don't necessarily want you to cultivate critical thinking skills because you don't need to. Yeah. You can trust and rely on us, which to me, again, there's an ex- the extension to that is we don't respect your growing ability to become discerning human beings with the ability to judge, discern right and wrong, and receive personal revelation that can, in fact, check us so that we can be in a collaborative relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't feel that that was even evoked at all in me. It was just more like, you can't and you don't have that ability. You just need to stand back and do what we say, yeah. which worries me. Yeah, no, he he made several times the point that we can only come to Jesus Christ through his church and we can only come fully to the church by accepting every word that comes from the, the living prophets and apostles. And, and again, I don't want to sound critical. Okay, I, I think the living prophets and apostles provide great direction when they point us to Christ. But to equate our only ability to receive revelation, to receive guidance through the medium of the church, through the medium of a prophet, and not through our own personal revelation, is to deny the story of the Garden of Eden. It is to deny the work that Eve did in making a judgment for herself. It is to deny the work that Christ did in rebelling against the church leaders of his day. And calling them to their faces, hypocrites. And so when we look at these great leaders and these great spiritual guides and thinkers, they didn't follow that pattern. And to take it from us is a denial of some of the most important parts of our spiritual history and our spiritual tradition. Two things come up for me, Nathan. The first one is that um, if we really and truly don't believe in a royal, in a loyal opposition, then we can't, by extension, believe in our the work of our savior, Jesus Christ, right? He stood as a loyal opposition against the Pharisees, the church of his day, the high priest. Absolutely. And so we, we come by our desire to have a voice inside of our own, our, our own institution by divine mandate from our heavenly parents and our savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing that occurs to me is that we as discerning growing individuals, in this world and specifically in this institution, part of the growth process is a collaborative effort to provide each other checks and balances. Yeah. Every institution and every family and every intimate relationship, secular or spiritual, needs to have voices that are being shared so that we can provide like a pool of knowledge. And will we always be right? No. 
will they always be right? No. Right. But if we're always working towards coming closer to what feels like it's safest and healthiest and most loving, then we're able to realize godliness more quickly. If one part of that equation is shut down, especially when part of the whole says you don't, you can't be trusted, you can't participate, you aren't good enough, smart enough, holy enough, able enough. You know, you've got one of two alternatives, either either the party complies and they just live in this very, very codependent, underdeveloped place. Right. The atoms. Right. Or they or they rise up and go, wait a minute, that can't be right, because that is not in keeping with my divine nature. That is not how God created me. Thieves. Yeah. We've got to be able to have the courage to recognize that when we feel like something is right, we have covenanted before this life as children of divine parents to speak up with love and also with courage and say, no, I was created in the image of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who spoke truth to power. And we have to be in this kind of a collaborative relationship or we will, as an institution, fall. Yeah. The ironic thing about what you're saying is that although they push back against loyal opposition or grassroots grassroot efforts, and yet our church is full of examples of where that has happened and it has succeeded. And so, you know, for instance, again, I go back to the to the priesthood and temple bans, right? Let's not kid ourselves. That came about because of social pressure, because people were starting to stand up and say, we are the last on the civil rights bandwagon, guys, and it is time to make a change, okay? And I guarantee you that social pressure played a part in that. And grassroots pressures played a part in the reversal of the uh, baptism ban. Yep. Okay. Grassroots efforts played a huge part in the changing of some of the languaging and ordinances in the temple that uh, are less misogynistic, thank goodness, mm-hmm. and women getting to go back to participating as witnesses, which they used to be able to, and it was taken away, and now they've gotten it back. But let's not make, make a mistake. That has come about because people have been pushing back, and it has forced the leaders to take a look and say, yeah, it's time to look at this again. So, you know, we have a bunch of it, you know, uh, the child protection, you know, being, being able to have an adult now in, in the room with a bishop, that came apart because of grassroots efforts. Some of people who gave up their church membership to make that possible. And yet, and after excommunicating them, they turned around and, and made all the changes. And so we, we know, we know that grassroots efforts like that actually do have an effect. So in some ways, what I feel like you're heightening, Nathan, is that there's historical precedence that this kind of thing is in fact happening institutionally but they haven't explicitly acknowledged it right. and entered into a conversation where we're all invited to the table. Right. And that in some ways is, in, is once again, it's, it's, an, it's an evidence of the state of health or lack thereof in our current institution, which is at, at some point in time, things change, but there's a lot of broken glass and a lot of uh, wounded lives and a right. lot of excommunications because people stand up And they allow themselves to be the voice for change that is oftentimes doing so because they're standing up for people in pain. 
and to then feel that they are going to be punished for advocating the way their savior taught them to advocate is an incredibly troubling thing to think about and to recognize that in this very talk, we are explicitly discouraged from speaking on behalf of people that are in pain, right? speaking on behalf of people that have concerns and doubts that are legitimate, that are, that are ruining marriages, that are causing some suicides, that are um, breaking people's hearts because of the betrayal and the pain that they feel as you know, historically very loyal members of this institution. They want a dialogue. They want answers. They want to feel like they're part of a larger conversation where they can be healed through the very atonement that the church has tried to teach them, like an institutional kind of healing. Mm -hmm. We've done these things and we have done them poorly and we are sorry. But the, the message that they're sending is we, we don't, we're not interested in your pain. We are not interested in a two directional conversation. We don't respect your judgment or your powers of discernment and nor should you. Right. You should lean on us. And then I think that kind of segues us right into this whole kind of topic, which is a desire for ongoing dependency. It seems like, again, this is a take home that I have that concerns me, which is that Jesus Christ and his atonement is controlled by this church. And you are dependent on this church to have access to the atonement of Jesus Christ. I must say, among all of the other things that were painful to listen to, I think that to me was the hardest one. I, and I completely agree with you on that. When <laughs> when I started having a realization of, of what I I felt like this message was, I, I was really kind of shocked, actually. Uh, he asked the question, why can't I worship God directly? Why do I need an intermediary? And throughout this talk, he, he answers this question. He says, we, we need prophets who are the intermediary for the church. The church is then the intermediary for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is already our intermediary with God. Do, do you realize how many steps you just put between me and my parents? Right? Like, I can't, I can't get to my heavenly parents because I have to go through Christ, who goes through his church, who goes through his prophets, who goes through my local leader. And, and I'm just scratching my head and saying, I, that's not my lived experience. Right. My lived experience is that my heavenly parents and my savior are really close. And and he actually touches on that. At one point in his talk, he says, Christ is not this distance figure. He's really close to us. It's just, he has to have like seven layers between us. He, it made no sense. It made, it made no sense to me, but some other analogies he used, he, he called the church, the, the capsule that delivers the drug of the atonement. So in other words, we can't actually access the atonement without the church. He also says that the only way to come to Jesus Christ is through the covenants. The only way to get the covenants is through the church. The only way to get through the church is that you have to accept everything the prophets and apostles say. Um, and, and I'm just listening to this over and over again. And he repeats it in about 10 different ways, and I won't go through all of the, all of the wording on this, but just over and over and over again, it's you can only get to the atonement through the church. You can only get to the covenants through the church. You can only get to the church by the apostles and prophets. And, and, and maybe for some people, that's true. Maybe that is how they've come to Christ. I got to say for myself, that has not my, been my experience. Well, it it's so complicated by 
lived experience, in my opinion. I mean, first and foremost, I, I feel like this idea that the church owns the atonement is incredibly damning yeah. and harmful to all of our brothers and sisters over with 99 point something percent of which have lived and will live in this earth. And to think that we as a church and a very wounded, if trying, <laughs> a very wounded church, we own Jesus Christ's healing atonement. And it's the only way that people can have the experience of becoming made over in the image of their savior. I just simply cannot and will never buy that because what that does is it negates the beautiful, powerful, spiritual lived experiences of billions of people yeah. and their lives. And I even, we talked about this last night in our preparation and I thought to myself, okay, well, what would they say? What would they say on the other side? Well, it's okay. We'll get them baptized into the, into the church and everything's going to be okay. And to me, I think, mm, so what does that make of their entire lives right. and everything that's ever happened to them? that has brought them in very authentic and real ways closer to their higher power, Jesus Christ or otherwise. I don't even necessarily, oftentimes I think because there are so many beautiful people worldwide who don't know of a savior, but are healed by the invisible Christ. Right. The, the uh, anonymous, anonymous Christ, Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, as they call it. Right. Yes. And so those folks, really their experience is negated unless it is brokered through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. And, and if I could just build on that a little bit, because sure. I, what you're saying is is exactly what my experience was when I was listening to this. So I want to build on that a little bit, because one of the problems I saw here was that he, he's he's equating getting eternal life by checking the boxes of these covenants, right? So we check the box, we make the covenant, we come back and renew it every week. And in checking that box we qualify for eternal life. And he even used the word um, that uh, conditional, that, that eternal life was conditional on, on making and then renewing these covenants, okay? So the problem I have with that is that my understanding of preparing to go back and live in the celestial realms above is that we need to become people who look like God. I think of the the imaging from Alma chapter five, where he says, have you been made over in the image of God? Okay. Well, I know lots of people who aren't members of this church who have been made over in the image of God. And I know a lot of people in this church who may have made covenants and have not been made over <laughs> in the image of God, not, right? It, it's in both directions. They're, they're working on it maybe, but they're not there yet. But the covenant in and of itself does not cause transformation. No. And he says that multiple times in this, that the covenant is the thing that brings about whatever the atonement does. I just simply can't buy that. I don't buy it at all. Is it possible that that can potentially be a means by which people become made over because it is a meaningful way that they worship and that is a part of their larger process? Yes. Correct. But does one equal the other? Right. So clarifying what you're saying is, yeah. is that covenants may be an important part of coming into Christ and, and learning about the atonement, but they are not required. And, and especially when he says covenants made in this church. Okay. So for instance, I'm reading the works of Francis of Assisi right now, some of his writings. This man was made over in the image of Christ as much as any man I've ever read about. 
Okay. And he was the founder of the Franciscan order of the Catholic church. He was full of love. He was an embodiment of love. He rejected wealth. His parents were wealthy. He rejected that wealth. He made it his life's missions to live among the poor. He's the first person to be recorded to call nature our, our mother and our father, our brother and our sister. And everything about this man says made over in the image of God. And yet he didn't come to God through the covenants of this church. Let me let me just um, expand on that, Nathan, Please. which to me, as you're speaking, it occurs to me that in his way, through his embodied life, Francis of Assisi did, in fact, make covenants with God. They looked different right. than what we're talking about. They didn't go. He didn't go to a temple with Moroni on the top of it. <laughs> right. 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 But I do believe that we make covenants with our divine parents and our savior, Jesus Christ, in incredibly beautiful and creative and unique ways, as do other people throughout the world and throughout time, when we are living a life that embodies what it means to be made over in the image of God, slowly and surely through our own experiences Correct. of woundedness and healing and loving and serving and saying, I'm sorry. Well, and connecting with the divine directly ourselves. Yes. And with others, which as we connect with others in ways that emulate the divine, we are renewing the covenant relationship that we made with our divine parents before we were born. Right. And so covenants are important, but are they the literal thing that happens in the Mormon church on a Sunday morning at nine o'clock. That may be, a, it, it may encompass that because that may be where certain people are able to worship in an authentic way to them. So I'm not saying that they don't matter and that they're not important, but I'm also saying that we need to make God much bigger yeah. than that. That's really well said. Yes. You know, make God bigger than what we're saying here. And, my, my Book of Mormon reads that it's an infinite and eternal atonement. My Doctrine and Covenants reads that the presence and power of God emanates from God throughout all of space and all of eternity. And while I do think, like you said, that the covenant of the sacrament, for instance, has had a profound effect on me, to say that it is the only way that people can come to God is through, you know, this covenant in this church, this way by, by these people is not consistent with what I have seen from great spiritual people from all cultures, all religions, all throughout time who have clearly been made over in the image of God and not here, not, and, not in this place. And so we believe that um, despite what we heard here in this particular address, we believe that it is sacrilegious and actually doing great damage to our brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout time to inauthenticate their lived experience in becoming children of God through their own unique forms of worship. And to say that this church owns the atonement and it's the only means by which the atonement can be activated to me, just feels it feels harmful and it's incredibly concerning to me. It also brings up, I think I'm already, we've already kind of talked about this, but I'm going to go ahead and peg a word to this, which is it brings up our struggles with the concept of spiritual exceptionalism. 
I feel like this talk once again goes just even deeper into the problematic idea that we are the best, the favorite, the only, and the only true <laughs> church and children of God, and that we are superior to others. That in and of itself, to me, is not a principle that brings out the best in people. But to be able to recognize that we, as children of God, are all a part of a big, beautiful family, and that in unique and beautiful ways, we are becoming more and more like God as we love and serve each other as equals. And this talk throughout, through and through, was not only are we better, but we're special. We're the only church. We need you to be dependent on us. We need you to not trust yourself but also that the world out there is scary and you will not be okay if you're not in here. And I feel like that is an incredibly concerning idea because it also demeans the beautiful world and the people that are also God's children that are being guided by our divine parents all of the time. Yeah. Uh, well said, babe. Well said. <clears throat> um, you know, and, and I'll tack on a, a current example. Mm. Um, so the current, Catholic Pope Francis, who named himself after Francis mm -hmm. of Assisi, right? If I look at some of the things that he has done yeah. with the Catholic Church, he has stood up and taken accountability for the sex abuse scandals. He said, yes, it has happened. Yes, it is wrong. And the people who committed them and covered them up will be held accountable. Okay, beautiful. He's also the first Pope to go on record to say, I don't know what to make of the LGBTQ population. I am not in a position to judge them. Wow. I, remember, I remember hearing that for the first time. And I was like, a spiritual leader who's opening the door to the possibility of listening to what is going on in, in that community and to have an open dialogue. And, you know, Francis is the first Pope in a long time when the, Vat when the Vatican celebrates his birthday. Um, it's supposed to be like this really big pomp and circumstance, right? So, so when Francis was inaugurated, right, he's the first pope to not stand on a stand. He, he stood just on the flat balcony to address the people, symbolically trying to say to them, hey, I need to be on the balcony so you can see me, but I'm not going to stand on the stand because I don't consider myself better than you. That's beautiful. I didn't know that. Yeah. And mm. then I don't know if it was his first birthday celebrated as the pope or when it was, but he took out all the cardinals. He said, go, you're mm. not, you're not invited. And he opened the door and he brought homeless people off the street into the banquet table to celebrate mm. his birthday with him. When I see things like that, I see a man who's made over in the image of God. Well, and I think just recently he traveled to Canada and did a big um, formal apology to the, what the Catholic church has done with native, the natives, the yes. native, mm -hmm. I wanted to say native Americans. I guess that is America. If native you think North, of, Americans. Yeah, native yeah. North Americans in once again, taking ownership of how the Catholics were complicit in a lot of harm done to a vulnerable population. Once again, that is incredibly mature and it's incredibly endearing to see an institutional leader with the ego structure to recognize that I am good enough to have wounds and to have faults and to actually stand up on behalf of my institution as a mortal that can take ownership of our wounded human history because we are all wounded and those of us who believe and like think about what the atonement is all about of course we're wounded nobody has a problem with that we live with that condition 
on the daily as, right. as human beings. And so it's just really, really lovely to recognize that he is acknowledging on his own behalf, on behalf of the, his predecessors and on behalf of the, the Catholic Church at large, that we are in fact fallible and we will actually be specific about where we've been fallible. And I think that's once again, to circle us back to a take home from this particular talk, sadly enough, um, in contrast to what we were just sharing about the Pope, mm -hmm. which is that uh, mention was made that yes, prophets and apostles are fallible, but it's very striking to me that over and over again, even when they say those words, they don't become accountable for specific areas wherein they're actually fallible. It's right. always a very sort of a global thing, but when it's um, there's an opportunity to say where, when, and how they were fallible, they miss a huge opportunity to once again, intimately connect with us. Yeah. And, and for me, what you're saying is that in having that ego structure to do that and having that ability to do that, I see a man who is capable of doing it because of a close relationship with God, which then goes with one, some of our other points. It's not an exclusive club. Yes. My lived experience my lived experience is that lots of people have been made over in the image of God, have been made over in the image of love through various means. Yes. Yes. And also just to, to sort of heighten what you're saying, Nathan, is when we are able to hold our own complexity and offer our fallibility or our humanness, it's because we are working towards individual and institutional wholeness. And what that means by default is that we are shrinking our relationship with our shadow. And what I mean by that is when we have a shadow, which individuals and institutions have, it is that there is a part of us that we don't want to be in contact with. We're uncomfortable with it. We're insecure about it. And so the more we don't talk about it, the more we hope everybody else won't notice it. And here the Pope is acknowledging, I I can hold the tension of our history and I can actually explicitly bring it up. And that is someone who is in a kinder and gentler and more mature relationship with their own shadow parts, their own history. Mm -hmm. And the more we're able to hold and even acknowledge our wounds, our shames, our sins, the things we wish we hadn't done or wish we weren't, but we actually are, the more we're able to become whole by holding the tension that we are a composite of light and dark and every individual and every institution is both because that is a part of the human condition. All right. Are we ready to do our final point? This is the part that you were looking the most forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's, okay. let's hit our final point. Okay. Our final point today of the take homes, the troubling take homes from this elder Hamilton address is this is what I took home from this, is that according to this talk, I guess Jesus is not an eternal embodiment of love. And you might wonder, what does Valerie mean by that? But I'm going to hand this over to Nathan because this really got him going when, when he was studying this. So go yeah. for it. So, so when Elder Hamilton was talking about um, some of our questions or struggles with the church, our church policies, or even church doctrines. Uh, which, by the way, he said church doctrine never changes, and that's not true. It changes all the time. It changes all the time. Okay. He said, well, substitute the word the Savior or substitute the title Jesus Christ for the church. So I have a problem or I don't like a policy that Jesus Christ made 
fill in the blank. Okay. And he says, when I do that, this is Elder Hamilton's uh, saying this. He says, when I do that, it changes my view of the policy. Unfortunately, when I tried that, what it did is it changed my view of Jesus Christ, which didn't hold water with me. Okay. So, for instance, I'm going to use one of my favorite examples, which is Brigham Young calling for blood atonement for interracial couples. So I don't like how Brigham Young taught that interracial couples should have their throats slit as the only way they can get back to the celestial kingdom. Now, if I substitute, I don't like how Brigham Young taught that for I don't like how Jesus taught that. That is not the Jesus that I believe in. That is not the Jesus that I have been taught. The Jesus that I know and love and believe in would not call for the blood atonement of interracial couples. So when Nathan was uh, walking me through this, he said, I, I did the practice as recommended. And he said, in every situation where I entered the word Jesus Christ in place of the church on issues that hurt or are painful for me, he said, in each case, it became clearer and clearer to me, not what Elder Hamilton, I think, wanted me to think, but it became clearer and clearer to me that that is not, these are not Jesus Christ's policies or doctrines. The last time I read the New Testament, it said, Jesus told his disciples, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. So I don't like how in 2015, Jesus Christ denied the eight-year-olds of LGBTQ couples the right to come unto him through the ordinance of baptism. No, I'm sorry, doesn't work. I, I, I No disrespect to Elder Hamilton, but the Jesus Christ that I believe in, the Jesus Christ that I have been taught, that I read about in the New Testament, would not have denied little children to come unto him through an ordinance that is designed to be symbolic of a new life in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Nathan. I I think that was productive practice in helping us once again cultivate our own God-given powers of discernment. And it also in some ways helps us recognize the Savior who we worship is an embodiment of love. And the church that we are a part of or around, for some of us, as hard as it tries is not a perfect institution run by perfect people and they make mistakes and that's okay. The problem that we have and, and the concerns that we're sharing based on this talk is that uh, we live in an incongruent relationship right now because this institution isn't at the moment positioning itself to love and care for those of us who are calling upon them to be in actual relationship with us. We are inviting over here, love, communion, accountability, a conversation, a dialogue, a desire that we grow in our own abilities to discern truth from error. And also in our abilities as members, members of the church to be actually an influence on the betterment of the church as a living, growing institution, which we have been told this is a living growing institution. And so what we're hearing here and the take-homes we have is that our voice is not welcome, that our pain is not acknowledged, and that the very legitimate concerns that we have in a multitude of areas, including our own actual relationship with Jesus Christ and our own actual experience of the healing power of the atonement and the love that we have for our brothers and sisters of other faiths or of no faith at all, 
isn't dignified as um, counting or as important or as valuable. And these things are incredibly important to us and concerning. And we want to have a voice. We want to be in relationship. We want to be regarded as very important parts of this institution and of raising a voice of warning and also practicing our divinely given powers of discernment, judgment, and common consent, which is the only way that wounded institutions can become whole. We shouldn't be trying to attack each other in an institution where we purport to all be wanting to come closer to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah. Yeah, there needs to be room for different points of view. There needs to be room for different opinions. And I would just add to to what you said there so beautifully. Um, I, I don't pretend to have the power of, of total discernment. There are lots of things oh. I don't know. But one thing that I can do that I feel very safe in doing is I hold everything up to love. Does it feel loving to me? I feel like I have the ability to answer that question. Does it feel loving to me that there's not a safe place for our LGBTQ youth in our church? I just read a, a statistical report from BYU that 44% of our LGBTQ youth and, and young adults have had serious suicidal ideations. And while that number is in line with other churches and even, even those who aren't of any religious faith, it is way too high. There is no reason that 44% of our LGBTQ youth and young adults should have had serious suicidal ideations. That is not loving. Love has broken down somewhere. So for me, I can hold that up. If it's loving of God, if it's loving of my fellow man, if it's loving of myself, if it's loving of the earth around me, I can use that as a measuring stick. I think what I've also learned in the last week or two as I've been studying, Nathan, for some other topics that I'm working on on this podcast is we have to look at the wounds and the pain of our single people in the church. Mm -hmm. Is it loving for them to feel that somehow something is wrong with them because they don't fit into a prescribed box? Mm -hmm. I also look at um, the wounds and the pain that people are feeling who uh, who are struggling in their intimate relationships because one person is in faith crisis and their partner is shutting down and sometimes really um, acting in ways that are demeaning or unkind or our families are potentially breaking apart because of the growth of one of the members and it's dogma that's dividing the family. These are things that are legitimately concerning and so we as an institution want to invite dialogue and we want to do it in love. And Nathan, and I hope we really have endeavored in this conversation. If you're listening, Elder Hamilton, we do this in love. We, we love you. We want you to understand that we are a, a sizable population and growing all of the time that are actually trying to find reconciliation and that we want to be heard. We don't want to be told to be faithful and be quiet. Get back in line. We don't want to be told to swallow our cognitive dissonance and to make sure that we just fall in line and stop using our God-given powers of discernment and the judgment that we're exercising and acknowledging. And some of us even speaking out about something that doesn't feel good. It doesn't line up with who we are and our nature as children of God. 
And we believe that we have the ability to discern and to practice that and to be in dialogue so that together we can come together to something that is good, right, and true as we commune together as children of God. And that no one is better or greater or more entitled to truth and revelation of God's children in or out of the church at any level of supposed authority in this church, that we all have the God-given ability to counsel one with another and together come to something that aligns with love. Amen. Anything else you want to add, babe? All right. We are grateful for each of you. We had a call and we wanted to answer this for you. So hopefully this has been something that helps you feel seen. Each of you who listened to this or who have read this and have suffered and have felt pain, who have felt unseen, unheard, uh, we see you. We are one of you and we love you. I am grateful for the chance I have to be a spokesperson on behalf of what I feel is helping us all become more wise, more whole, and closer to our Savior Jesus Christ and our divine parents. If this podcast is helpful to you and is helping you feel like you can take your own personal authority and trust yourself more, um, I encourage you to please share this with people around you. I um, am deeply grateful for those of you who already have shared this and are continuing to do so. This is such an important topic. And as many of you have already said, it's so incredibly important for each of us to have words to wrap around deep, painful feelings that we have. It helps us make sense of our lived experience, and it gives us the ability to know how to move forward in a way that is healthy for us inside or outside of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because our only motive and being here with you is to help you become agents unto yourself and to learn how to become the most healthy person that you can become. Also, if you're wanting to join a small group, a small community, I have uh, shifted uh, much of my life and much of my time for the time being to you. If you want to become a part of a small group, reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com or on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast, where I have wait lists going and I am thinking about starting a couple of more groups, trying to just keep up with the demand. Also, I do individual or couples consults, um, just a couple at a time because of the demand. I also have people that are working for me that can do more long-term coaching around faith crisis, faith expansion, or other issues. And I am also in the process of creating some courses that tackle a lot of the tougher content that we talk about on the podcast in much more detail. And last but not least, I am super happy to report this podcast is part of and a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. And another show that you might be interested in is Fireside with Blair Hodges. He is a personal friend of mine and has been instrumental in my in the development of this podcast. And I owe him a huge debt of gratitude and listen to his show. It is absolutely beautiful. You can also support uh, this podcast and all of the podcasts on the uh, Dialogue Podcasting Network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. And as a subscriber, you can receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. It is so good to be with each of you and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.